Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Nerd Explosion. I am your host, John Wintrub, and as always, I am joined by the Candid Clark himself, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? It is reading week. Thank God. I am getting very tired of this semester, although my dear co-host John Wintrup doesn't want to hear me complaining considering how many exams he has next week. Not really. I have five exams next week, so your complaints can go right up your butt, boyo. (laughs) You know what? That's fair. Although I do have a final presentation in front of the new NAU president, so I at least have that. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Yeah, but... Yeah, doing good, and we have some interesting stuff to talk about, so excited to get started. Yeah, we have, I mean, I've been waiting for this for a long time, (laughs) because it's now been, like, what, a year and a half since this film first got announced at, um, was it D23 San Diego Comic-Con or something? But we finally got our first trailer for Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. So it was a interesting trailer in the sense that they showed us stuff Mm -hmm. without showing us stuff we didn't get much plot in this film it was basically just like hey here's this guy uh you know shang chi yeah but what what exactly is the plot we didn't get much of that in this but you know what i'm good with that because it, it makes this movie very interesting, and I gotta admit, the, the fight scenes in the trailer were pretty cool. Yeah, um, the trailer primarily shows just, like, the bare, like, basics of, like, what the tone is going to be for the film, um, what the action is going to be like, what the set's going to look like, so that we have maybe, like, rough ideas of where it's going. Um, we had very little time with Shang-Chi himself, though. He didn't have, he had, like, two lines in the trailer, and it was near the end. So we didn't really get a good feel of what his personality will be like in the film. The one thing that we did get was a lot of dialogue from his father, who based off of a lot of the plot speculations and casting stuff, and also um, what Shang-Chi's father was like in the comics, a lot of people were theorizing that his dad is going to be the real Mandarin, considering that the title of the film is Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, the Ten Rings referring to the Mandarin's Ten Rings that he made himself that each had like different powers and stuff in the comics. Which I'm honestly more than down for this, considering the fact that Iron Man 3 had basically a middle finger to the audience of everyone expecting the Mandarin. And, And yes, film came out nine years ago we don't need to get into a debate iron man 3 but if we see the actual mandarin that actually would be pretty cool i would think and i hope that the speculation is proved to be true in that and that the people who are fans of the character can get that satisfaction that they want to see yeah um just for those that aren't familiar with shang chi um in the marvel's comic shang chi is one of the most capable fighters ever In fact, I think that most people consider him to be the best hand-to-hand combatant in Marvel's comics of any character within them. Um, So if that doesn't get you excited for this thing, I don't know what will. The other big thing, and and again, like as I mentioned, there's there's a lot of rumors that the Mandarin is going to be Shang-Chi's father or adopted father of some kind. And that is also something that is like a slight change from the comics. Because in the comics, a character called Fu Manchu was Shang-Chi's father. And he was also like a very Asian stereotype, like martial arts t- 
type villain, very similar to how the Mandarin was in the comics. So it's not too much of a stretch for them to change that to make the Mandarin his dad. It also makes it so that there's less villains and less conflicting stuff happening in Marvel's movies. So it makes sense from a writing perspective. Yeah, and honestly, this movie is also a love letter to uh, Chinese Kung Fu movies. Uh, I know that, that my dad was a really big fan of Chinese Kung Fu movies, and this this is one of those movies that just seems like a love letter to that particular genre. And for people who enjoyed those kind of films are really going to enjoy this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, that's very similar to the reason why Shang-Chi was created in the comics. He was created in the early 70s, around the height of when Kung Fu movies started being really popular in the U.S. Um, this was around the same time that characters like Luke Cage and Iron Fist were created as well, because Marvel really wanted the hit on that demographic since it was doing so well in film, they figured it would do really well in the comics. And considering that Shang-Chi hasn't been able to keep up a, a solo standalone comic title like ever, it didn't exactly go well for them, but hopefully the movie changes that. I mean, I have to be honest. Was Guardians of the Galaxy super popular before the first movie came out? Not really. I mean, it had one comic run in the 80s that was, like, semi-acceptable. But, like, I think the only character from that that was even put in the movies was Yondu. Like, the entirety, the entirety of the roster from the, from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies comes from the 2009 comic run. And that was, like... That comic existing is a miracle, which means it's a bigger miracle that the movie happened at all. <laughs> and not to mention, so it was so good. So let's hope that Shang-Chi has a similar impact to the character in the comics, like Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. And just like you mentioned Guardians of the Galaxy, Shang-Chi is the first uh, Marvel character to get to debut in his own film since 2016 with Doctor Strange. Which is kind of nuts if you really if you think about it, because there's so many characters like, oh, Black Panther, he didn't debut in Black Panther, he debuted in Civil War. Yeah, same thing with Spider-Man. Exactly. So seeing a character debut in his own film is gonna be really cool, honestly. And I'm glad that you know that is the case. But yeah, no, um, overall, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of the things that Simu Wu has done. I know the director of Shang-Chi did um just mercy um back in 20 early 2020 late 2019 yeah er, yeah early 2020 so um based off that film i don't know how he's going to handle like the action stuff but i know that he'll be able to um deal with the the character drama really well just based off of his work in that film so but again like the trailer did a really good job of like hiding stuff so i still I, I mean, I have rough, like, ideas of what they're probably going to do because, like, Shang-Chi is a comic book character. There's pre-existing stuff with him. I can kind of, like, take that and try to see where they're, where they're going to go with the film based off of that. But it's, I, I, again, they just didn't show that much. So we really don't know. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that is the case. You know, there, there, are some, there are some trailers that definitely show too much, and I'm glad that this trailer was not one of those trailers. Yeah, I think the only thing I would have liked is, again, just more scenes with Shang-Chi in the trailer, like, so that we get a feel of what the character will be like in the film, <laughs> what his personality will be like, um, because they didn't have to do that with Black Panther because of Civil War existing. We already knew what 
type of character Black Panther was going to be like within his own movie. But for Shang-Chi, who hasn't appeared in anything before this, they really needed to give us some kind of idea on what the character would be like within his own film, and they didn't really do a good job with that. So, Absolutely. I, again, it could be because they're trying to hide plot developments within the film, and a lot of the dialogue has to deal with the plot of the film, but I don't know. That's just speculation. But the other big entertainment news that we got this week was that Castlevania's fourth season will be its last, um, which definitely came as a shock to me, um, mainly because of how good the third season was. I thought that there would be more than just one more season left with the story. But there is a good reason for that. But first, we're going to speculate about the fourth season. So what do you think is going to happen this final season, Sean, since it's the last First of all, uh, clarificate uh, just for uh, transparency. So I was introduced to Castlevania last, I believe it was October, mm-hmm. which, you know, around Halloween time, so fitting. But Castlevania is a show I really enjoyed. The first season was good, but season two was like, okay, this is really good. And I also really enjoyed season three. I, I enjoyed season two a little bit more, but I I do think that all, like the entirety of Castlevania is... It is an overall a quite spectacular show, and I've been waiting quite a while for a four season to get announced. Uh, it is on my top 10 non-anime list. It is number five. It is in between The Mandalorian and The Boys. Shows you how much I like Castlevania, if that's the case. So yeah, we get a fourth season, and well, let's just say a lot's going to happen because you have... Uh, Hector being a slave to the vampires. Oh boy, our poor, yeah, poor Camilla, Carmel, um, Carmilla and her sisters. Yes, uh, you have Isaac with his army of the dead, and you have you have uh, Trevor and Sypha's adventures, and um, Alucard becoming more like his father. Yeah, a lot happened, and I feel like this this is basically just going to create like a big explosion. What's going to be a pretty incredible final season. Because there's so many great storylines set up. Because season three was definitely a lot slower than the previous two. But it, it, it did a great job fleshing out all the characters. And I feel like there's just going to be a lot of big confrontations. I think I think Isaac is going to uh, unleash some devastating terror upon, upon the vampires in the land. And I think there's going to be a lot of death. I think at least half of our main characters are going to die. Um, I think that it's very, I don't think that, I think Alucard is probably going to survive the season. I wouldn't be surprised if they bring him back for another show, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, But I would not be surprised at all if Trevor and Sypha die. I'm pretty sure Hector probably will. Um, And I don't see, I feel like, because at ultimately I feel like what's going to happen is we're probably going to have like a serious territory battle between Isaac and Carmilla and based off of that I would I can see Isaac winning that (laughs) oh yeah Isaac uh has quite an impressive army to say the least on top of the fact that he murdered Godbrand himself so yeah yeah, we know that he can murder vampires when required to yeah I think Isaac is pretty OP and it's going to take a Herculean effort to even slow him down absolutely um but yeah uh, 
Um, for a little clarification, we've known that the fourth season was in production since season three ended because it was immediately renewed, but we did not know this would be the final season until this past week, which again came as a big shock to me because I expected that we'd get more out of these characters. I feel like they were going to draw the story out just a little longer, but I can understand why they don't want to because Castlevania is such a huge franchise and there's so many other characters they could tackle in future shows. Um, but we do know that the entirety of the main cast that was in the third season is coming back, including um, St. Germain, as shown in the poster. So I wonder how that's going to work, considering that when we last left him, he was trapped in another dimension. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to get resolved. I appreciate you bringing that up. I actually kind of forgot about that. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to get resolved. Yeah, there's so much, so much happened in the in the third season, although it's much slower. And I feel like this fourth season is just every episode is just going to be ins- it's going to be insane. I think. Yeah, and we don't have an official date yet for the fourth season, but we do know it's going to come out sometime near the end of this year, and it's going to have ten episodes, just like the the third season did. So that's exciting. Um, However, I think the even bigger news that we got is since they're ending this version of Castlevania at season four, we also got confirmation that they're going to adapt another story from the Castlevania universe. And and a lot of people seeing as the next Belmont in line chronologically after Trevor would be Simon. There's a lot of people predicting that the next version of Castlevania will will follow Simon Belmont. So the same character in Super Smash Brothers. That Simon? Yes. Um, Simon is, of course, the protagonist of the original Castlevania game. And I believe that Trevor was the protagonist of Castlevania 3, which was a prequel to the first Castlevania. So Simon would be like the next obvious step when it comes to like what character we could probably get as a protagonist. Um, other people, I mean, the, the other speculations that could be Richter because Richter also um, came after Trevor and we've seen Richter's whip used by Trevor within um, this show already. So I think it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to see um, a show following Richter as well, but Simon seems the more likely case just because of the timeline. Yeah, this is this is uh, exciting. Uh, I have not played the original Castlevania games, but I have played Super Smash Brothers, so I do at least have an idea of what Simon and Richter looked like. And just by the way, they're very good characters in Smash Ultimate. I'm just going to say that right now, especially Richter. But yeah, Richter is stupid, broken. He's yeah, so Richter is stupid. <laughs> you just but, poke people into oblivion. It's so great. <laughs> oh yeah, the range <laughs> on his whip is insane. Uh, I, I, I use Richter sometimes in Smash Bros. And it drives my friends crazy how much range I have with the whip. So seeing one of these characters as a protagonist cast would be really cool. It, it's kind of like after I played a Final Fantasy VII remake and then Sephiroth was announced as a character or, or just playing with Cloud, I'm like, you know what? I actually like have more passion to win with this character. So, so it, it's just one of those really cool things. And Obviously, Castlevania has been amazing. Nine and a half, 10 out of 10 show. And obviously, I know whatever they do next is going to be great because Power S animation is great, just like Blood of Zeus is also great. And I can't. We're also getting a second season of. Oh, I, <laughs> so. yeah. I remember I binged, <laughs> I binged all of Blood of Zeus season one in one day when I had COVID. And my God, that was, that was like watching a very long movie. Yeah. I watched it with my mom and my stepdad, and they both loved it. 
Yeah. So, what is his, that was a little too violent at times for my mom, but she really liked the story and she really liked the way that they wrote Hera. So. Yeah, no, Hera was well written, but Powerhouse Animation is fantastic, and I just can't wait to see season four and the next show. And also, she was like Powerhouse Animation, like that's just where it's at. Yeah, and that's this is like this comes on top of the fact of like everything else Netflix is currently doing animation wise. I watched like Pacific Rim the Black last month, and that was awesome, like surprisingly good, especially considering how terrible the second movie was. And they also had Shira, which ended last year, and we have y- um, Yasuke, which is coming out next week. <laughs> so um, you'll probably see a review from the, of that from me on the site, considering that it'll be after finals. So very exciting time to be an anime fan with a subscription to Netflix. Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, the last piece of news that we got literally just broke the day that we're recording this, which is April 19th. And that is we got the director announcement for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2, the sequel to what I believe to be the best Spider-Man film ever made. <laughs> um, the directors are, of course, Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson, all of which have pretty good track records when it comes to animated works. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is easily, and I mean easily, the best Spider-Fan, Spider, Spider-Fan, Spider-Man film ever made. And it is even on my top 30 all-time favorite films list. It is number 26 as I pull it up right here. Yeah, Spider-Man Spider-Verse is literally my top 30 all-time favorite films. It literally is looks like a comic book on in a film style. And it is amazing. It's a great coming of age story. The voice acting is tremendous. And the pacing is one of the best I've ever seen in animation. It's it's paced perfectly. And I've I've only watched it twice, but each, but each of the two times I watched it, I had an absolute blast. And seeing a sequel is going to be obviously must watch. And I'm very excited, especially with Ken Powers being announced. He was a writer for One Night in Miami. Uh, his, his play of, of One Night in Miami is, was adapted into a film. Yeah, and, and One Night in Miami was his debut as a playwright, by the way. So that should give you a good idea on how good his writing is. Yes. And not to mention, he also he also co-directed and was a writer for Soul, which I, which I reviewed for the site. And one of just it, it's a film that just joined the Pixar elite. So for for Kim Powers to be working on the Spider Verse sequel is fantastic, and I'm beyond excited for this. Yeah, and he's not the only powerhouse director working on this because Joaquin Dos Santos, for those that don't know, has probably directed all of your favorite episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender. (laughs) Um, As he directed both of the last two episodes of Sozin's Comet, The Southern Raiders, the first half of The Boiling Rock, The Day of Black Sun, The Puppet Master, and The Beach. Ooh, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, those are most of my favorite episodes because I would say... The outside of Sozin's coming, I would say my second favorite episode is uh, the Southern Raiders because my two favorite characters in Avatar are Zuko and Katara, and those are the two characters that I focus on. And I just think that is a, such a brilliant tale of revenge and forgiveness. It's it's incredible, and obviously we all know how how great Sozin's comment is. I mean, it's only one of the best, if not the best, finale in television history. 
Yeah. And the puppet master is one of my favorite examples of horror in a children's cartoon, because <laughs> it's important to note that a lot of animators really like working with horror themes, but because of the stigma against animation in the West, they often have to import that horror style of animation in um, kids cartoons, which is why many of us had nightmares as kids watching the puppet master from avatar the last Airbender. oh yeah that's a very terrifying episode and i still and i still get chills thinking about that episode to this day yeah on top of that he also um directed a couple episodes of voltron the legendary defender and many episodes of the legend of Korra's first season including its premiere and a portion of its finale as well yeah, uh, season one of Legend of Korra was, in my opinion, the second best season. And I think that, you know, his his direction had a lot to do with it, even though some aspects were lackluster, just like the entire show, outside of, you know, season three, because season three was great. But yes, yeah, so very exciting news. Yeah, and um, Justin K. Thompson is the third director. This will be his directorial debut, which isn't too strange because that was the case for um, two of the directors of the first film. I know Rodney Rothman especially um, was really excited to finally have his turn directing since he had been writing since the 90s exclusively. So it's not too out there for um, us to get a directorial debut out of one of the directors here. And Justin K. Thompson was previously the art director on the first Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And he also did the art direction for the two Cloudy with a Chance of Meatball movies that Sony Animation also worked on. So pretty stacked list of directors. I'm, I, I, I have little doubt that um, Spider-Verse 2 will be as good as the first one at this point, just because of how good the staff working on it are. This is, of course, on top of the fact that Warden Miller, who um, wrote and produced the previous film are both coming back as producers while not writing it. And Peter Ramsey, who was one of the directors on the original, is also coming back as an executive producer. So the people that had their hands on the first one are still, they have their, their hands a little bit on this one, but they're taking a step back and letting other people play with, play in the toy box this time around. Which honestly should be exciting, you know, with, with the visual medium that Spider-Verse has, you're able to adapt you know, and have a lot of imagination. So obviously I have no complaints with who's going to work on this. And obviously I'm no doubt it's going to be great. Yeah. Well, that's it for the news then, but we have a lot of television to talk about because we had, like every week, we had a lot of television this week. Um, the first that we're going to talk about is of course, Invincible, like always. And this was a pretty good episode, even though I didn't really... I can see why they decided to go with um, this episode so early on into the show, especially considering what events are kind of starting to unravel as we get close to the finale of this season. Uh, yeah, but basically most of this episode is about, is, is about Mark and his friend William as they meet up with William's boyfriend at... At Potential college. boyfriend. Um, and well, he's trying to resurrect his relationship with Amber at, at this college, but um, that all goes awry when a certain cuckoo for Cocoa Puff scientist 
decides, you know what? Humans are dumb. Humans are weak. Humans need to be perfected. And yeah. Yeah, it's pretty standard, like evil scientist motivation. Um, that's taken just a little, little further because of how um, dark Invincible is willing to go. Yeah, there was, a, you know, human experimentation, uh, a bunch of slicing off parts, a lot of... Very graphic human um, experimentation, by the way. We see him actually cut apart people and mess with them, their physiology. And when the first kind of subject that we actually see in the show fights against Mark, and Mark rips the mask off him and he sees what he looks like, he commits suicide because he can't handle his different, different appearance and, and realize that his life was over. That's dark. Like, that's like a whole new level of dark right there. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. Like, when I saw this, I, my jaw just dropped them like oh a, a, a tv show just did this yeah yeah and again like within the universe that that's well set up it makes complete sense yeah it's still is <laughs> it still is somehow surprising because of how simple and like f and familiar the show's like visual style is until something horrific like that happens on screen yeah, and it, the opening poster of Invincible gets bloodier and bloodier and bloodier. Yeah, th this episode fit that pretty perfectly. And I honestly do like at this point how Mark realizes, you know what? Even though he tried and tried and tried some more and, he, and tried some even more, at the end of the episode, he's just like, you know what? I have more important things to deal with. Yeah, and exactly. Like, look, man, I understand liking someone and wanting to do everything from them. Trust me, I'm in a relationship. I totally understand that. But at the same time, you still have your own identity, buddy. You still have your own identity and you still have to do what, what, what you need to do. And you still need to make sure that your priorities are straight. And unfortunately, having you know, a normal girl knowing you're a superhero just isn't part of that. Yeah, it's, again, this is very similar to what happened in the comics. Although, to be fair, again, with the minor differences, this storyline specifically didn't happen until Mark and Amber and William were already in college, which is really strange because I think one of the issues that that has and something that you kind of, I never really realized when reading it was that Amber and Mark's relationship in the comics was stagnant for a really long time without any development between them happening, where they kind of were just together, but there wasn't any like dr relationship drama or anything, which is really unrealistic. Um, so again, like one of the positives of the show, they're speeding all of that up by having something like this happen so much earlier on. It's very refreshing. Obviously, you know, well, let's just say how it is. You can't have a relationship without drama. It happens. No matter how much there's a connection or no matter how mature both people are, because, you know, people are different, there's going to be drama. So to have a stagnant relationship like throughout a show, just it just doesn't work as well. But with this, it, it definitely feels like a real like awkward high school relationship where he just happens to be basically Superman in training and it's 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 hard and 
you know, that there's someone else out there that would actually be perfect for him. That's also a superhero, but you know, what do I know? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That's not like they're, they're teasing an eventual hookup between them at all. No, that could never happen. Oh no. And it's not like that girl is now in a tree house and it's yeah. Yeah. He finally left her parents and is living on their own and helping the world i mean technically as a superhero because she still wears her uniform but she's she's not doing it by fighting villains she's doing it by um like fixing crop growth and making crops grow faster or stopping a landslide on the hiking trail or um helping those that are genuinely in need of help not just stopping the big bad for of that week like what mark is doing yeah, and honestly, if it isn't obvious who the best character is at this point in the show so far, it's clearly her. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, I mean, I, I'm. I think that in the comics, Eve actually might be my favorite character. So. Yeah, she's great. It's awesome that that basically the main female of of the show is on is arguably the best character in the show, which is awesome. I love the development she's getting, and I love just seeing her going around helping people. And just her just, you know, smiling at the life she created on her own, like, you know what? <laughs> oh my gosh, what? Uh, excuse me. Um, seeing her just live that high life, literally, in the tree was very gratifying considering that her dad is the most misogynistic person on the planet. We already discussed that in previous. Yeah, he's podcasts. awful. Yeah, no, he's awful. So seeing her get away from that and just help people, I'm like, oh. It's beautiful, but this is invincible. Good things don't last long. No, they don't. Not really. <laughs> Sadly, as a as one of the painful truths of of this show, that more and more people are going to realize over the course of its run, because it only gets worse. Ah, <laughs> oh, great. Um, and we're slowly seeing that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of getting worse, um, yeah, she knows it happened. She knows. Yeah, yes, yeah. um, yes. Um, Mark's mom, um, the wife of Omni Man, found his suit all bloodied and and covered in stuff last week. And being the intelligent person she is, she brought it to Art, who is of course the person that has made basically every superhero on the planet's costume. At least that's what it seems like. And together, they were both able to figure out that not only. Um, does it have pieces of the costumes of the members of the Guardians of Globe, but also um, the traces of blood from them? Um, the oldest traces of blood were found on his fists, which would imply that he was the one that engaged them in a fight. And talking about differences from the comic, I love this, mainly because it creates so much tension. That again was never there in the comic. She like, and there was this subplot did not exist in the comic. Um, Art and um, and Mark's mom did not know at all about what uh, that Omni Man was the one that killed the Guardians of the Globe until much later. Um, I don't think they ever figured it out on their own. And again, like, props to the writing. That's awesome. I'm, I'm actually kind of glad because they're not, un like neither of them were ever shown to be unintelligent in the comic. And it did feel kind of weird that neither of them were able to figure it out of what Omni-Man had actually done on their own. Because again, they're intelligent. It's not like they're stupid. Like, 
Yeah, and obviously Mark doesn't know yet, but he'll probably learn in the next episode, which, oh boy. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we're starting to get to the breaking point. Like, Mark's mom told Omni-Man specifically that she knows. Um, and that's going to create all kinds of tension because, like, the second that Mark gets back, it's like they're going to have to decide whether or not to tell him what happened. To tell, um, And I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next episode we see Omni-Man telling Mark the, not just what he did to the guardians of the globe but the whole truth oh and that's not gonna go over very well yeah um the other the last like kind of kind of huge thing that happened in the um well i guess there are two huge things left that we haven't talked about the other one the first one is that um everyone is is awake now everyone is fine after the after battle beast absolutely demolished them but it, it sure took a lot for that to happen <laughs> yeah robot basically went out of his way to heal monster girl and you saw you saw how he genuinely cares for her and has these emotions and black samson who basically got his powers back after insane electric cpr yeah so and it doesn't seem like he knows he has them back yet he, he can feel a difference because he stated that he feels like he did when he had his powers. But I don't think he's realized that he has them back. True. And, we, you know, we see Robot have these most, and Black Samson is just like, I see that you care for her. And he's mm -hmm. like, absolutely. I'm like, okay, Robot. Um, you don't, you definitely don't act like a robot. <laughs> yeah, and I think that both Black Samson and Monster Girl, especially, are starting to realize that Robot isn't just a robot. I think that they're both starting to realize that. Yeah, because when Monster Girl woke up, uh, Monster Girl was like, you were here the whole time? And he was like, absolutely. And I'm like, that's something a human would say to very affectionately. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty cute. It's pretty sweet that Robot has, has a crush on Monster Girl, not going to lie. Oh yeah, no, it no, it is really cute. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah, and it's again like there's there's so much that's going to happen with it. Like we we've seen what's going on with Robot and the Mauler twins with them like making him what appears to be a human body. So I, I'm hoping that we get more and more of that within the next couple episodes, and we see a conversation between Robot and the Maulers with them talking about what robot has promised them, which is some kind of schematic of some kind, probably some invention to help them um, maybe make better crones or be stronger or something. I don't know. Um, we, it's kind of vague, but the Maulers are of course not liking the fact that robot is kind of not telling them that much about the plan, about what he's having them do, what he's going to use the clone for and who the clone is of on top of the fact that he's only promising payment after they've completed what he has sort of hired them to do. So. Yeah, honestly, that's not good business for robot. I mean, yes, you'd be like, Oh, I broke you out now. Like do this for me and you won't get anything. Your mom is, you know, a little down payment would not be a bad idea. It would, it would, it would, it would show good trust. It would be like, Hey, like you have already gotten something out of this but only a little bit if you want all of it you gotta prove it but just as a show of good faith here you go that's a very good business tactic yeah i again i think it's important to note that while robot has emotions i think he has a hard time understanding 
other people, which is probably why he didn't realize that the Maulers might not be as trusting as he might hope they are. I think he's being a little too ignorant or oblivious here. Which is why he has his flaws. Yeah. And of course, in response to this, we see we get the end credit scene of the Maulers appearing to be digging up a mortal's body, possibly to resurrect him or something. Yeah, whatever that could mean. Yeah. Um, so I, again, I know that it's very possible that the 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 Global Defense Committee, I think the GDC, um, they could have, that definitely is possible that they could have lied about the immortal being dead. I wouldn't put that past them. But again, we'll just have to see if that goes anywhere in the next couple episodes. But again, like I imagine the things that we're probably going to get, we're probably going to have Mark finally telling Amber that he's invincible because at this point he has to in order to fix their relationship because if, uh, because otherwise it's just going to go down the drain because she won't understand what's truly go, going on with him. And her thinking that he just ran away, leaving, leaving her behind when the, the zombified drone thing attacked the university um seriously puts a rift in their relationship so he he has to tell her or it's or they're done um and then we're also probably going to see either omni-man be forced to talk to mark about the truth um or mark specifically talk to him about it and we're probably going to get a lot of tension about with um, his parents trying trying to figure out a way not to tell Mark about what's really going on. Ah, yes, hiding the truth never goes well. I I can say that, you know, whether 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 it's relationship or friends, hiding very important stuff, it's kind of hard to overcome that. And this show is a example one on one of that. You can't have a relationship without hiding literally your biggest thing, which is the fact that you're. A freaking superhero yeah and i mean you saw william's response to it well as much as excited as he was that like mark was invincible there was also a part of him that was disappointed that he didn't tell him like himself willingly mm-hmm. so, exactly yeah uh, i guess we'll just have to wait and see what amber's reaction was again considering how much more developed amber is as a character i think her reaction is going to be very different than it was in the comics um, the other big superhero show that we got this week was, of course, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And oh my God, was this such a good episode? <laughs> yeah, let's just say that I was very drained after watching this episode. There was so much. There was so much that happened. That opening action sequence was so good. Yes, John Walker, who I saw this tweet. And oh my gosh, is it perfection. It was basically the tweet that said, Wyatt Russell is such a good actor as John Walker that everyone hates him because of how good of an actor he is at a hated character. Yeah. Other, uh, other examples of this include, you know, Dolores Umbridge. Um, I can't remember that king from Game of Thrones that looks like Justin Bieber. Um, and <laughs> I can't remember 
Cameron from Cuba, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yes, 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 yes. That's, yeah. Because <laughs> whenever anyone sees Wyatt Russell, everyone's going to be like, oh, you're John Walker. Oh, I can't stand you. You're such a sniveling bug. I can't stand you. But yeah, we see John Walker fighting with Sam and Bucky, and um, it's a pretty even fight, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's probably because he has a, has the super soldier serum on top of how good of a soldier he was. I mean, you saw how good he was physically even before he got the serum. So yeah, and the opening action sequence, awesome. And throughout this whole entire episode, you see uh, John Walker. He He's, you know, obviously trying to move forward with this. He got stripped of his title by Captain America, you know, even though, you know, the people who took away his title literally built him and he followed their mandates and they basically betrayed him. And then he was trying to make amends, you know, with Battlestar's family. And you really see, you know, John walking this episode just, you know, trying to figure out, okay, this is bad. Now what do I do? Although... You know, a certain yeah, he's, act. he's kind of gotten addicted to the idea of him being Captain America. Um, he sees it as a way to rectify all of the bad that he's done, not realizing that being Captain America doesn't automatically take away all of his flaws. He's still just as much of a flawed person as he was before he was Cap. And if anything, him having the super soldier serum and him being Cap only makes his flaws more obvious. Yeah, it, it doesn't change your problems. You know, Captain America, you know, should be earned. You know, Steve Rogers earned it all the way back in 1941. He earned it. And yes, John Walker did to some extent, but at the same time, you might want to fix some of your issues first. Yeah, uh, I don't think he ever actually, like, deserved being Captain America. That was a title that was given to him because he was a good soldier. But that's not what Captain America actually is Captain America at the end of the day is a good man doing his best with what is given to him and that falls way more in line with who Sam is than it ever did with John Walker I don't think he ever deserved to be Cap and that has only become more and more queer over the course of the show I would agree and you you do see you do see Sam as that like good man you know he's helping fix his sister's boat you see him, you know, giving some tough love to Bucky. You see, yeah, and you see how easy it is for him to rally his community behind him. When he reached out to his neighbor to the neighborhood to help fix the boat, everyone, everyone responded to him and came out to help. And that shows the type of person Sam is, that people are willing to go out of their way to help him because they know he would do the same for them. Yeah, he, as we talked about in the last episode of this conversation with Carly, he does represent the, the traits of Captain America. And, you know, it is a little complicated because, well, the show flat out addresses it. You know, have, having a black man as Captain America is not, is not a super popular idea among America. Yeah, and, there, I mean, even... It's because people want, or at least the people of America want someone as Cap that, what, or that represents what they believe in. 
and I can certainly see the government being afraid of someone that doesn't seem to line up what they think Captain America should be, which is, is probably one of the reasons why, as mentioned in this episode, Isaiah was chastised for everything that he was. It's important to point out that in Isaiah's backstory that we hear him talk about in this episode, he does all of the same exact things that Steve did in Captain America, the first Avenger. He had somewhere that he needed to be, but instead chose to go save his comrades when he could, because he knew he was able to. And instead of being cheered as a hero, like Steve was, he was given a slip on the wrist and put in prison and jailed and experimented on. Which is messed up. Yeah, it makes perfect sense for someone like Isaiah to have such clouded judgment on the world. And like he's like he said, the, um, the world hasn't changed that much since what happened in the 50s and 60s to him. And while we do need someone as hopeful as Sam, it's important that someone like Isaiah exists the show that everything isn't as hopeful as we may want it to be. The world still has its issues and they haven't just disappeared because we act like they're not there. Yeah, no, there's still a lot of, of issues, you know, in society, obviously race, race issues are still very prevalent in today's society, obviously with the current political climate with, you know, a certain trial going on. And we know that these, you know, that's the way the world still is. It may not seem like it to some people, but it definitely is there. And that's one thing that Sam, at least give him credit, he he went out of his way to like, you know what, I don't know, like tell me, please. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. and that's and that's honestly great. Yeah. And Again, I think Sam needed someone like Isaiah to talk to. I'm, I'm astounded that the show is willing to actually like discuss this like as, as much as they are. I always knew that it was going to come up at some point in Falcon Winter Soldier just because when Sam first became Captain America in the comics, this was a big issue then too. But the show, surprisingly, is doing more with this than the comics ever did. Which is strange because I never once expected that. I ne- I always thought that it would be kind of shallow and played out, kind of like how most of the MCU has been when they deal with anything like deep, like like this that relates so much to tensions within the real world. Because usually they either just sugarcoat it or it's like mentioned once and that's it, kind of like in Black Panther. Um, but they're actually like going deep and having real conversations about it. And that's awesome. I'm, I'm very impressed. I am very impressed with that. Another thing I'm very impressed about with this show is my God, uh, Bucky's development has been quite spectacular. And I, my favorite part of this episode is where uh, Sam and Bucky are talking and Sam's like, can I show you some tough love? And basically he explains, like, you, you've been trying to, you know, rip off people and punish people that you benefited as the Winter Soldier. And Sam was like, you know what you need to do instead? You, to, for the people you wronged, instead of saying sorry, like, be of, be of service to them. Because that's exactly what Sam has been doing 
he's been of service, you know, to his sister. And the fact that he, you know, told Bucky to, you know, be of service. And I'm like, oh, that's some great advice there. That's some great writing. And, you know, you see Bucky like starting to mature, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, handing Zima over to the Wakandans. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like um, Bucky choosing not to kill Zemo and letting the Dora Milaje take him back to the raft is just shows such a great deal of character development for him because I think that the Bucky that we saw in Civil War and definitely the Bucky that was the Winter Soldier would have just killed Zemo right then and there and ended as revenge for all the torment that um, he inflicted on Bucky during the events of Civil War but because of everything that Steve and Sam have done for Bucky and all the, and how much he's grown due to his time in Wakanda um, and all the tough love and, and care and, um, and everything he's gone through throughout the course of the show. Um, it's, it's awesome. Uh, again, like, I think, I think one of my biggest issues with Bucky in the MCU was like, as, after the twist that he was the winter soldier, they didn't really do that much with his character and he always felt kind of like how sam was where they just kind of felt in service to steve as a character but now that they're actually given their own time to develop on their own without being in steve's shadow it's really it it allows them to be their own characters and because of that we get this kind of development with them yeah obviously we all know how great steve is but we at the same time we needed these two psych characters to get their own show and obviously Going back to when this show was first announced, I was ecstatic that they were announced as 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 you know the front runners of the show, and they've done a fantastic job with both of them. Um, moving on to a little bit of anime, but still staying with the superhero topic, we had episode two of My Hero Academia, and unlike last week, we have a lot to say about this one because <laughs> there was a lot that happened. <laughs> All right, so basically this episode was split into first, it was about Endeavor and the Todoroki family, then the second half was a dream that Deku had. Yeah, and we also got a lot of time with Hawks as well, um, starting to see the reason why he's doing what he's doing and um, more of his type of character and how far he's willing to go for his ideals, which apparently includes being a double agent working within the League of Villains to to eventually defeat them. Which is pretty awesome. I never really thought that, you know, before before we learned this in Heroes Rising, I didn't think that a double agent was something my hero would do. But th- they've done it. And, you know, I'm very intrigued to see much more of it because, you know, you see Hawks, the number two, literally the number two hero has infiltrated the League of Villains. And first of all, Xena Robinson's voice as him is spectacular. Uh, watching ReZero has definitely given me more appreciation for his performance as Hawks and seeing his like conflict and his determinedness as determination determination oh my god uh is is quite amazing honestly and I I just want to see more of Hawk give me give me all of the Hawks content I want the Hawks content well, considering what people have, considering what I know of Hawks' story, because sadly I did have the uh, him be, him being a double agent working within the League of Villains spoiled for me after he was introduced in, in um, Heroes Rising in season four, but that'd be how it'd be. Um, but based off of that, I can already tell that we're going to get a lot of time with Hawks, which is awesome. 
And as you mentioned, like Zeno Robinson's performance as him is really good. It's awesome to see him get so many layered, like um, character-driven performances lately. Between this and his work as Garfield and ReZero, it's just so awesome. It is, and I'm excited to see more of him. And obviously, we, we, we spend time with the number two hero, but we also spend time with the number one hero, Endeavor. He was obviously pretty badly injured after his fight at the end of season four with the Hayanomu. And he, we go to his home and we see, you know, the Todoroki family, which, you know, which, you know, for me was, you know, pretty cool to see, you know, considering Shoto is my favorite character in the entire show. And we see Endeavor trying to make things right with his family, but well, let's just say this, it's not as easy as Endeavor may thought it was. Yeah. Um, I think Endeavor ever thought it was going to be easy. He just hoped that his family would be maybe more accepting of him, of the changes that he's trying to make. But it makes perfect sense, especially for Natsuo, who um, after he was introduced at the end of season four, seemed to have a really deep connection with their mother and considering what Endeavor did to their mother um, putting her in the in the mental hospital because of what she did to, to Todoroki and all the stress that he put on her. It makes complete sense for Natsuo to be the, the least accepting of Endeavor trying to change himself. Yeah, and obviously Todoroki knows like, wow, I've never seen Natsuo show that much emotion. And when Todoroki himself was asked about it, he said, well, you want to be my father? Well, you got to earn it. And I really like that because it's very realistic. Like, let's say, let, let, let me use this scenario. Let's say your significant other cheats on you, okay? Obviously, it's a pretty traumatic thing to do. And obviously, you know, you care about the person and you want them, to, you know, you know, you still want to be with them, but at the same time, there's still all that trauma. And even if they try to, you know, redeem themselves and to try to apologize, it takes a long time to build up that trust again. And I mean a long time because you have to deal with weeks and months of trauma. And it's not it's not a painless and short process whatsoever. And and that's what Shoto is going through currently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's also we got like last week, we get further teasing about Dobby's identity and his relation to Endeavor with two lines spoken in this episode. The first of which um, was Dobby stating Endeavor's full name to him, which is interesting because we've never had any character address Endeavor by his full name. We've had, character, we've had characters like All Might address him by his first name. We've had um, Gran Torino addressed him as Todoroki, likely because Gran Torino taught him when Endeavor went to UA. But we've never, we've never had someone address him by his full name, even the members of his family. So I wonder if that, that again, like that teases that there is some familial connection with Dobby. And then on top of that, we have Natsuo mention that and that they have an older brother that we supposedly haven't met that apparently something Endeavor did something incredibly bad to him. Um, we don't know exactly what, because again, it's very vague, but knowing Endeavor is probably some kind of physical abuse. 
um, because Endeavor likely didn't think he was good enough, like the rest of his children that weren't Shodo. So, lots of teasing. Yeah, and considering that Dobby has a bunch of burn scars across his face, mm-hmm. uh, mm, yeah, well and not- fire-based quirk, and we saw in season two when Endeavor fought a Nomu there that he that Endeavor is able to concentrate his fire enough to um, put out blue flames. So it's not too much of a stretch to say that. It's very likely that Dobby's probably a son of Endeavor. Also, not to mention, uh, Dobby and, and Todoroki actually had a brief uh, interaction in Season 3 when the League of Villains, uh, the Commando Squad, attacked the training camp. And we, we see uh, too slow Todoroki. How would he have known who Todoroki's name was? But, you know, he was just there. He, he just happened to mention his name in, like... He, like he went out of his way to say Todoroki's name as if like that name meant something to him. So there's another thing there too. Yeah, it's um, I definitely think that this is going to go somewhere from the within the course of at least the first half of this season, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Absolutely. But the second half of this episode dealt a lot with one for all and its history, and we have gotten teases of this with the knowledge that um, of how Wong um, all for one has been around and the fact that um, in his prime um, before there were a whole lot of superheroes, he had basically taken over society by um, destroying all the rival superpowered gangs that existed within Japan due to the sheer power of his quirk and the loyalty of his followers. And we also already knew that he gave one for all initially to his brother who was a weak sick um man that was born without a quirk and thinking that he might be able to get his brother onto his side and change his brother's morality that kind of and shift into um what all for one's ideology is he gave him a quirk thinking that he would help him in the process but instead, um, he just kept passing it down eventually to create probably the most powerful quirk ever because of the sheer power of One for All, which initially started as probably the most useless quirk ever, <laughs> considering that you can't really do a whole lot of stockpiled power when you have no power to begin with. Yeah, and that ended up being All for One's downfall when All Might used the last of its power to basically wreck him, and he is now behind bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him. but he's not dead. That's an important dead. distinction. He's not dead. Um, so as much rough, as much, um, as tough as it has been, as, um, as many problems as One for All has given All for One, um, it, it, it still isn't, hasn't been enough to deal with men. And I imagine, again, it only gets stronger the more and more it's passed down. So, I, I, I mean, I feel like it's inevitable that we'll probably see a fight between Midoriya and All for One at, one, at some point where we might have to see Midoriya be forced to kill him. Ooh, which that would be a brutal scene, but that probably won't happen for a very long time. And obviously Shigaraki's going to have something to say about that too. Yeah. So, but the more important thing that we got from this episode was we actually got to see the relationship between All for One and 
the his brother that initially um got one for all um we see how abusive the relationship was and we see how intimidating all for one was and the fact that what's even more interesting is that all for one at least initially maybe not now because of how long he's been alive but initially when he first got his quirk and started using his power to take over japan believed what he was doing was right that him stealing quirks from people and giving power to those who wanted it was somehow justified because he was making people happy and gathering people that would be loyal to him treating him like he's a god yeah basically there was this guy who had these fang had this fang quirk took those away and gave it to a guy who wanted it because he felt like his life didn't have meaning and his brother was like you like who are you to play god you like that's like you can't do that you know being you know being goody two shoes over there mm-hmm. but at the same time one all for one was like you know what here take like take this and that turned out to be a pretty uh fatal mistake but you know it's what happens when you think when you have a god complex you you have a bunch of oversights yeah and the type of fellowship that all for one has is very similar to what we've seen with characters like stain and overhaul within my hero academia's last couple seasons the only difference is that overhaul and stain at the end of the day had ideologies that weren't completely misguided their ideals were in the right it was their methods that were wrong yeah i mean obviously it's you know do the ends justify the means Mm -hmm. the classic you know philosophical debate that is prevalent in many shows and it is here and it's interesting how deku is seeing this and one and the original owner one for all is like you know, I would show you more, but you only can use 20%. And Deku wakes up and literally breaks his window, which, yikes. Yeah, but that may, again, that makes sense because the last time he had a connection with the previous users of One for All, it was during his fight against Shinzo in season two. And when that happened there, he also used his quirk um, without meaning to, because, because it's, it's kind of like going into the Avatar state in Avatar. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's a perfect example. Sometimes it just triggers under immense stress, which the, se- the first uh, episode of season two of uh, book two of Avatar basically is like, hey, we're going to hold Katara hostage. And there goes the Avatar state, which, yeah, you probably shouldn't have done that because your entire base got ravaged. Mm-hmm. So when you go into that state, a lot of damage caused because the user is not in full control of it. Well, I think I was more so relating to the fact that um it can someone else can take over one of the previous members of one for all could probably take over when if they really wanted to because deku is so he he hasn't fully realized or is in full control of it so his his ability to talk to the previous holders of one for all is a bit diminished because of that and it's very similar the the way ang was able to communicate with the previous avatars and avatar the last airbender very true, and I'm curious to see the impact that this stream has on Deku, and he's probably going to go talk to All Might about it, obviously, so that conversation should be pretty interesting. Yeah. The other interesting thing that we saw um, during the vision with the previous holders of One for All was the first two that were that had the quirk passed on to them are 
kind of shaded in black, like they're hidden from the rest of them. And I wonder if it has to do with the way that they used one for all, if it wasn't, if they weren't the pillars of hope that the original holder of one for all and people like Deku and All Might and Nana Shimura were when they had it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of unknown what exactly they, they were like around the time. Like, they didn't exactly make that clear. But yeah, it's it, it just creates it just it, it creates even more questions about what exactly one for all has been. But again, it, it's just a dream. You're not it's it's not an exposition where everything's just laid out. Yeah, uh, it's like hints at that, and uh, it's similar with the fact that like the third holder of one for all was completely caked in gold, as if like. And I think that the, what that's visually implying is that the first two were not, they didn't really use the quirk as heroes. They, kind, they likely probably used it for their own gain. And it was the third person that One for All was passed down to that finally acted as the hero that, was, that One for All was always intended to be for. Yeah, kind of a, you know, in your face, like symbolism with that one. Yeah. But it's a, it's that type of in-your-face symbolism is important when you only have like a twenty-two minute show and you can you can only do so much within that span of time. But yeah, no, this is this was a good episode and it definitely weighs a lot down of what we're probably going to see later on in the show. I, I guess I'm guessing that we're going to get more and more time spent developing the previous welders of One for All, um, which is going to be really exciting and. The, the storyline of Hawks and Endeavor is really intriguing. I'm excited to see more of that as well. So Yeah. No, it's definitely exciting. And I would say the number one thing I'm looking forward to is, is, is more of that Hawks double agent content. Absolutely. The other big show that we got this week was ReZero, which I absolutely love this season so much. It's so good. <laughs> like, this episode is so good. Oh my god. I love I love everything that they're doing with Roswell and Echidna's roadship. I mean it might be a past ancestor of Roswell, but I really, really love what they're doing with the history of the sanctuary and everything that is implied by it. And I I am very inter it's very interesting to me that there's more than just the seven deadly sins represented with the witches, because like we saw with um, Pandora and being the witch of Vandy. Not only did we get another sin, so to say, in this episode, but it wasn't a witch, it was a warlock, which has all kinds of connotations and, and is very intriguing. Okay, is every single episode, basically the last six weeks, a freaking backstory episode? like? How many of these are we gonna get? I can't take as many, many as we need. Um, because like the like the only like normally like for a lot for most like works of fiction, I would have issues with like spending so much time giving backstory for characters. But ReZero was doing it really well because they're having every backstory be tied in to character motivations or what the main characters in the present day need to know in order to further the story. And the reason why we're finally getting backstory with the sanctuary is because at this point in the show's storyline, 
Subaru holds more cards than Roswell does. So it's now Subaru's time to get information out of Roswell, not the other way around. Yeah, we're learning a lot and we hear, you know, Ryu's story about how, you know, Beatrice is a kid and his daughter and how, you know, they're trying to build the sanctuary and just before they could launch it, uh, the warlock of melancholy melancholy that's right uh attacked and Ryuzu basically offered herself as a sacrifice as she was the was the one that powered up the core and I'm and I'm like can this show just stop making me feel so many emotions because mm-hmm. because her conversation with Beatrice as she went in the pod oh man yeah, that was really good yeah um, Kira Buckland especially did a really good job with this episode as Beatrice. Again, I'm astounded by how much emotion Beatrice has kind of given us over the course of this season. That's it's I, again like things I didn't expect in ReZero. Caring about Beatrice. <laughs> it's definitely not on the list of things I thought would happen, and then it did, and now I'm sad. And I cried. I've already cried a couple times for her. So that's a thing that happened. Yeah, the first half made her, uh, you know, likable as as they basically said, like, I'm looking for someone to kill me. And now we're like, oh, yeah, Kitna was her mother. And, you know, she lost her good friend and reused him. Like, uh, mm-hmm. why, why, why do you do this? Why? Yeah. Um, yeah, although I think the most interesting questions that this episode brings up is, Assuming that the that Roswell L. Mathers, the ancestor of the current of the present day Roswell, defeated the warlock of Melancholy, do you think that that's the reason why Roswell is so powerful that he has the aspect of, of Melancholy within him? Because it's been very obvious that Roswell is one of the most powerful characters in the show. I mean, we saw what Roswell did to all those mobbies in the mm-hmm. second arc of season one. And I definitely think that the, he does have a lot of that destructive power in him that's probably just been passed down. And let's just say it's a little bit terrifying knowing that Roswell has so much power. However, because of, you know, Best Boy Auto and also Ryuzu giving him all this information, Subaru does have the advantage and actually feels satisfying as we are mercifully only a few episodes away from this arc being over. Thank God. Not, not a bad way, like, oh, this has been bad. It's like, Oh, we've been dealing with this for 20 episodes now. Yes. Um, I think my I think my big question for you, Sean, specifically here, is whether do you think it, it, why is ambition a sin? Or why is melancholy a sin? Specifically. I think melancholy okay, so here's the thing about melancholy. Melancholy is basically self-pity, and melancholy is basically, you know darkness so to speak and the reason why it's a sin is because it's basically a combination of of sloth and envy it's basically a combination of those two sins it's slothful because you know your mom calling you're just like oh everything's terrible i don't want to do this it's also envy because you're like oh everything's terrible and and you want things you have so the fact that it's a combination of those two sins yikes that that's extremely powerful and and just being melancholic is if, if if anyone is described as melancholic that's not good you should probably check up on that person just saying i would say that depends um because here's the thing with melancholy 
is that while yeah it does technically mean like a form of gloom or depression or uh, an overall feeling of of consistent sadness however it's kind of similar to greed because melancholy isn't inherently a sin you can have a thoughtful sadness which is another definition for melancholy where you're acknowledging your sadness and displeasure but also but being able to acknowledge it means that you aren't defined by it and that's it's again it's very similar to the fact that greed also isn't inherently a sin because you can have ambition but it doesn't necessarily become a sin unless you, if you let it define everything about your personality and melancholy is the same way i get what you're saying and i don't necessarily disagree but i just think that it there's a lot more negative repercussions that can come out of it more than positive in my opinion so therefore i would i would lean toward it being more of a sin I, th I think it's a conditional thing. But again, like seeing as there is a, a warlock of ambition, I mean, again, like with all of the, the witches that we've seen, usually the part of their, their sin is the thing that is most expressed within their character. I, 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 can, I can agree with that, yeah. I, I, I can agree. Well, I still think it's, I still think like, like at, at its core, it can be more, uh, negative like i would agree that also like it, it is definitely conditional as well mm -hmm. well no and that that whole story of roswell of course weans directly into subaru's discussion with him and my god the conversation between subaru and roswell in this episode is just fantastic um ray chase and sean chipwalk did an amazing job with the monologues they're so good this whole this whole conversation Subaru is basically you know roasting Roswell and basically you know saying like yeah I like I'm the one that's winning here and you know you don't have power over me and I'm like d d d damn what what okay yeah oh, and I think the be badass why don't you yeah and I think one of the most important like things that comes out of their conversation is specifically um, Subaru and Roswell discussing the, their motivations and Subaru pointing out that Roswell only believes in the people's weakness. He believes that a person will always be weak and always give in to their inner desires and only be purely selfish. While Subaru believes the opposite. Subaru, at this point, because of all of the love that characters like Rem and Otto and Amelia have shown for him, he believes fully in the selflessness of others which goes to show how far subaru has come as a character since the third arc because during the events of arc three subaru believed that people only would give in the selfishness and only rely on their own desires as we saw with his discussions with the royal candidates yeah it's it's a classic like hero versus villain outlook you have one who's very optimistic and one who's very pessimistic and ultimately because you know, there is good in people. And if you show people love, that can bring the best out of them. And because Subaru does that, especially with Amelia, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, 
it does bring out the best versions of them. And because of that, of course, Subaru is going to be right in the end because he shows them that level Roswell. And if you show someone that, oh, you're only weak, then they're going to be that. A lot of, a lot of times in life, you're a product of who's around you. And I think that's a perfect example of that. Yeah, that's especially the case for Amelia. I mean, as we've seen in every version of what's go of the events of pertaining around the um, Arc Four and all the stuff that Roswell's cars, um, every time Subaru left to go to the mansion on his own, it always negatively impacted Amelia because she didn't have Puck there, and all of her reinforcement was just Roswell, who was. While maybe he didn't directly tell her that she was weak, he never did anything to not to make her believe otherwise. And yeah, that's all Echidna was telling her. Yeah, it's not ex- Roswell's not exactly a great security blanket. In fact, he's the opposite, you know, considering right now Elsa's in Roswell's mansion right now. So. Yeah. And I mean, it does explain why he kind of feels like he has an, an, a connection to Echidna at all because as we've seen throughout um, the time when Amelia was taking the trial, the way that both Roswell and Echidna deal with Amelia's grief and weakness is exactly the same. All they do is reinforcement and reinforce it and expect Amelia to fail on her own. Yeah, and you know, we even saw in the trial where Echidna was talking with Amelia, and yeah, uh, let's just say Echidna was quite bitter at Amelia and constantly insulting her, mm-hmm. and it just shows that uh, you are such a bad influence. Also, just shut up. Yeah, again, like Echidna's only a good influence, so to speak, when she gains from whatever positive positivity is around her, like Subaru. She gains from Subaru having pride in himself and, and consistently attempting to reach victory. But she doesn't gain anything from Amelia being, being prideful of herself. She only loses the faith of people around her like Subaru. Yeah, because Amelia was able to pass the first trial after Subaru told her what he did. And all I have to say that is coincidence? I think not. No, of course not. I mean, no, it's, it's absolutely not a coincidence that Amelia is able to finally conquer her own grief once she realizes that someone actually loves her the way that she never thought anyone ever would be able to because of what she did to her village. Um, the fact that she wasn't able to defeat Pandora, the fact that she lost Puck and completely relied on crutches in order to um, stay even somewhat hopeful. And not to mention, you know, the person that loved her the most, uh, Fortuna, literally died. So that that, kind of also was pretty traumatic as well. Yeah. Um, So... But no, I, again, I appreciate how much more depth we're getting with each character in, the, in ReZero so far, and the backstories are doing a really good job of that. Um, I think there's a part of me that's grateful that the version of Roswell in the backstories isn't the same version that we have in modern day, so I don't have to feel bad for him. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
it would have been really weird as well if you know like oh this is a 400 year old man and i would have been like um yeah i don't want you to be sympathetic because no i absolutely hate you and it's yeah, I mean, we need at least one character like that since they ruined pebble goose for us <laughs> yeah i don't need to revisit that i don't want to cry again but <laughs> re-zero is basically becoming a slice a good slice of life anime where like they're fleshing out all the characters big time with with backstories i'm like very interesting that you're doing that uh-huh uh, i mean it's not like they didn't do that before we've gotten this style of storytelling the fourth arc is just an overextended version of what we got in the second arc in season one with Subaru being stuck in the mansion for a week trying to figure out what was going wrong. True. Well, that was just more of an observation with the with, with the whole show in general that I kind of just realized. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, it's always been like this. It's just that because the fourth arc is the entirety of the second season, they're able to take more time developing each of the characters within this section of the story. Um and I think that that works perfectly with the style of this arc. It really is just like a sit down and figure out everyone's problems and to get the best outcome possible type deal. And while that has been the case in previous arcs, because of everything that Roswell is doing, the place roadblocks for Amelia and Subaru, it's, it's a, even more so the case here than it ever was before. Yeah, no, that, that is definitely very true. And now that Subaru and Roswell had this conversation, I'm very interested to see where we go from here because I don't know. I, I, can, I can never predict this show, as I've said many times. Yeah. I mean, at this point, we've, we've dealt with, like, Amelia's own grief for the trial. We have Garfield on their side, so we don't have to worry about infighting within the sanctuary anymore. Um, it's just the white rabbit and the stuff at the mansion now. And as I mentioned before, I'm pretty sure that Otto's ability to communicate with animals alone would be able to defeat the white rabbit. So, and I, and if Otto is the one that's, you know, the, the reason for them being able to conquer the white rabbit, I feel like it would make perfect sense for it to be Garfield. That would be the reason why they're able to defeat Elsa. Well, considering that Frederica, who is Garfield's sister, is also in the mansion currently. And now that yeah. he's moved on from her, he's able to build a better bond with her going forward. But thematically, um, this would also show that White, with Otto being able to, um, being the reason why um, Roswell's plans were forwarded in the first place, it, it, it shows that power and numbers and the power of, and having friends that you can rely on is more, it, is what allows you to conquer the, the roadblocks in your path. Um, as great as it would be to see Subaru defeat them on his own, we've gotten that before in previous arcs with things like the white, rail, white, the white whale or saving Rem from the mob beast. We've gotten Subaru being able to conquer things on his own before, but this would be a really good testament having Otto and Garfield be the reasons for their success. It'd be a really good testament to the how far Subaru has come because he's able to rely on other people completely instead of only himself. That is very true. Uh, power of friendship done really well. It's always great to see. Yeah. 
On a more lighthearted note, we also had a new episode of Hori Mia, and since we didn't talk about Hori Mia last week, we're going to talk about both episodes 9 and 10. And episode 9 definitely made me cry. Just a little bit. And I'm pretty certain that at this point, Yoshikawa is probably... I mean, I think Ishikawa is still my favorite character, but she's definitely hanging on to that second spot pretty closely. Honestly, like, I'll honestly mostly hear your thoughts because I had this thought while watching episode 10 today. I thought to myself, is Yoshikawa a female version of John Wintrow? What do you mean? What? What? (laughs) What? (laughs) I couldn't get this thought out of my head. But I need you to expand on that more because I I don't see the relation. Well, here's what I was thinking. And obviously, none of this is an insult to you whatsoever. I just want to make that very clear right now. Okay. All right. But basically, first of all, we see Yoshikawa, you know, shop at, you know, nerd comic, you know, store areas, which is right up your alley. She does. I mean, the way, but I, I mean, the only reason why she went to the art store was because her sister wanted to go there. True, but at the same time, she still did go there. I um, mean, I guess. I think that's a bit of a stretch, though. Okay, but well, okay, what's coming next is not as much of a stretch. Uh, okay. First of all, her personality is is pretty similar. She's very quirky. Um, she is, is very quick to react, and also also is easily startled by things which i mean i guess that's true no that's extremely true um and also i would say you know that she that she's someone who is you know sometimes trying to figure out how how the word this so it makes so it makes the most sense uh you know she's someone who struggles to to, to, to really put, you know, the deepest emotions at the forefront. You know, someone like me, I, I wear my emotions on my sleeve, mm-hmm. okay? Like, mm-hmm. like, everyone who knows me knows this. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. But, uh, see, here, I mean, like, I get, I get where you're going with the, with the hiding the emotions thing. I, the thing with me and hiding my emotions, I'm going to be a little open here about this. So, don't worry for the feels train, I guess. But the thing with me, me being open to my emotions is it's, it's like a 50-50 thing. And again, I think, and this isn't the case for Yoshikawa. So this is why I kind of don't fully see it, but I kind of get it. Um, I wear some of my emotions on my sleeve. It depends on what they are and, the, and who they're for. And it, it, just, it depends on the situation. That is not the case with Yoshikawa. She is... With that said, though, that's more relating than what I am now. I will, I will agree that when I was that age, when I was in high school, I was pretty damn somewhere to Yoshikawa. I remember, um, I remember when I found out when I was, I think it was my junior year of high school, that the girl I liked was dating someone else. And I can tell you that I went through basically all the exact same emotions that Yoshikawa went through when she thought that Ishikawa was dating Sakura. Very interesting. Now, obviously, I do agree. And I probably should have clarified that it was probably you in high school, because obviously it's hard to compare a girl in high school to you 
who is in your senior year of college. So yeah, that's fully, my mistake. So, semi, not, not a fully functioning adult, but at least someone that is maybe is a, is a hint more mature than someone. That yeah. So, but that's, so yeah. Just like, that's like, that's like, that's like, yeah. Technicalities. Yeah. But yeah, the high school version, but yeah. So I, I just had to get that. Though, I couldn't help but think, but think that as I was watching episode 10 and yeah, um, there's definitely high school drama with, you know, you know, you know, y- y- Yoshiko was like, oh, um, this is my boyfriend, even though it's not true. And Sakura's like, oh, wait, you're dating him. And then Kono, who is voiced by Johnny Abosh, which how? Um, because. <laughs> because. Just how? You know, because, it's, you because know, Caitlin Glass know. is awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's you why. Know. Which, well, I mean, we're going to get into that even more with the show that we're going to talk about after this. But yeah, Caitlin Glass is probably one of my favorite ADR directors, like ever. And her direction for Hori Mia is just so good. Yeah, I mean, Mike McFarland exists because, you know. I mean, Mark, Mike McFarland is good. Like, I am sure that anyone that has, that has seen the dubs for FOMO Alchemist and Attack on Titan is not going to argue against Mike McFarland being awesome. But like, I feel like Caitlin Glass has like, as much, as great as Mike McFarland is, I think Caitlin Glass at this point has had her, I've got, I've felt so many emotions watching almost everything that she's worked on at this point that she might be my favorite. I can, I can probably agree with that. But yeah, we have all this, you know, fake relationship stuff and all this relationship drama, and it's done in a real mature way. And we even see Sakura, you know, getting the short end of the stick where uh, it's, oh my God, the whole, the, all of the, like the, the love triangle stuff is so good. And it's interesting because I think this is the first time that I've ever seen a love triangle where neither of the girls have a chance with getting with the guy. That's so cool. And it's interesting, and it's it's kind of painful to see both Yoshikawa and Sakura go through the exact same thing. Which is interesting because you know Ishi, uh, Ishikawa did ask, did get rejected early in the show. It's very by, by yeah by uh by Hori yeah it's um yeah he's had he has a very complicated relationship with girls just the. <laughs> Wait out there and i do think that i'm not going to say it's impossible i do think that it's i think there is a possibility that he could end up with yoshikawa at some point where he kind of matures to the point of realizing what kind of relationship they they have and the kind of the false kind of couple that they've been trying to portray themselves as in order to kind of protect yoshikawa from any guys that are hitting on her um could eventually lead into something real but with the way the show is written I don't think that that's a certainty because as as happy-go-lucky as Horimiya is and how willing it is to show like how how healthy some relationships can be because of the way that Miyamura and Hori specifically are portrayed, it's also not afraid to make the relationships feel real. So, but yeah, I again, I feel... I feel so many, I feel so much for, for Yoshikawa and Sakura in this episode, especially Yoshikawa. Cause again, like when I was in high school, I went through all the same emotional beats as her. I don't think I ever got like so depressed about that. I just straight up didn't show up to school, but there are definitely times where I was very like unemotional 
when it came to those type of like the 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 crush type feel um crush type feels that that idea of rejection that sense that that feeling that rejection gives you after so yeah high high school high school was 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 very complicated for many of us and this show does a great job portraying that and also one thing that stuck out about yoshikawa is she has a hard time expressing the things that she really wants like her heart her heart is set on something but she does she's not openly saying that yes i do want this and that can cause a lot of trouble like oh i wanted this uh hair clip thing uh but she didn't say and she got mad when she didn't i'm like i feel so called out right now i hate this you know what character that that reminds me of you know what other female anime character has that trait in common i got a figure of her today in the mail <laughs> oh no yeah that no. is i like that is a trait that yui had in origaru as well and that's the reason why she didn't end up with hachiman is because she wasn't open about her feelings she wasn't genuine about her emotions and that's the and that is likely the same reason why even if ishikawa doesn't feel the same way about ishikawa or even if he did if she doesn't ever tell him that it their, their relationship's gonna go nowhere it won't ever progress it'll always stay stagnant and that's never good yeah no that's not good um also when it comes to episode nine i have to i have to talk about this as well so yeah hormi is getting us a little open here so in this episode, we see Hori just go crazy. Like, she wants Miyamura to yell at her in public. And yeah. she gets... She's, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she has, uh, some interesting, um, quirks about her, uh, her personality, so to say. Um, and, like, serious props to Miyamura for being able to deal with that, because, oh my god, I don't know if I'd be able to. <laughs> I feel yeah. like it'd be a little much for me. <laughs> yes. Here's, I'll be, I'll be a bit honest about this too. Um, my own girlfriend has, has weird, as weird quirks like that too, where I'm just like, Oh, great. <laughs> Wonderful. I'll, 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 give an, <laughs> I'll give an example. I'll give an example. Oh, All right. My girlfriend loves to say, uh, like if, if we're back and forth teasing each other, just say, just say you hate me, Sean. What? I'm like, oh, dear God. And I'm like... Oh, my God. That's... <laughs> so are are you dating Hori? Is that is that what's happening? In some ways, <laughs> I am. In some ways, I actually am. That would, I mean, it would explain why why she liked Hori Mia when she watched it. She probably saw herself in Hori just a little bit. This is true. Also, I was considered a loser kid in around the sixth grade, like Miyamura was. So me too. Yeah, I totally. The whole Bowie um, storyline with um, with Tanihara in episode nine is just so good, and it's and it's something that happened to me when I was in high school too. With the kids that bullied me in middle school, they started the realize. Um, what kind of person I really was as we matured throughout high school and would actually go and apologize to me for what they did in middle school. And that's awesome. And again, like I am, I am very impressed with how well Horimiya is able to actually tackle the, like the high school elements and make them feel real because 
most entertainment shots at all Western portrayals of high school because they all sugarcoat it and make it seem like this happy-go-lucky wonderland when actually it's garbage and terrible, like the way that um, Wallflower shows it. And, but I think Hori Mia is actually probably the best representation of high school life we've probably ever gotten in any form of media, which is just nuts. That's so good. Yeah, I feel represented by multiple characters in this show, and that's amazing. Yeah, I love Perks, uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It's a movie that's very dear to me, and I even showed a good friend of mine, a good friend that movie, and he you know, broke down crying in that movie. But I would also say that Boring Media is the best representation of high school. It's in the most accurate. There's a lot of different... There's a lot of different great stuff that's portrayed in that, and I, I think it is fantastic, and... Uh, it's so well-rounded. There's so many good slice of life anime. It's not even funny. And this is like easily up there. And yeah, honestly, like, like, like your review of this is going to be pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm going to have to read the manga for this once it's all over, because sadly we do already know that we're only getting a single season of Horimiya, which sucks, but it's just, I think that makes sense because of how fast we're progressing through the story. It only makes sense for it only to be one season. And there's only so much you can do with these characters without it feeling like the story is being drawn out too much. Honestly, I'm fine with it being one season because we get so much content per episode that honestly, I'm completely fine with it. Unlike Nozaki, I actually feel like satisfied and we still have three more episodes left which but unfortunately only three more times you get to hear that amazing opening yeah um again why i mentioned that i see myself on multiple characters it's crazy that i can look at miyamira yoshikawa ishikawa and sakura and see part of myself in each of them and feel and it's it's crazy to feel represented by characters within horimiya because it's it's just it's so good and the writing for the show is amazing. And the voice cast is awesome. Um, I, we don't, I mean, we mentioned Johnny Ambosh earlier as Yanagi, but like, Anaris Quinones is, is so good as Yoshikawa. And we also have amazing performances from like Alejandro Saab as Miyamura and Zeno Robinson as Ishikawa. And the whole cast for the show is so good. I'll be honest, I keep forgetting Zena Robinson is Ishikawa because he actually sounds a bit different than he does in his other roles. Like, legitimately, I think I for, I think I legit forgot that Zena Robinson was him because we talked about Zena Robinson one of the last couple podcasts and I was listening off Zena Robinson's performance and I did not say Ishikawa. I'm like, oh, wait a minute, he actually is. I totally hear it now. But that's how good of a performance he is, that, like, it's yeah. actually different. Yeah, but I think, again, that it goes to show the range that the members of the cast for Hori Mia have, as well as how good of a director Caitlin Glass is that she's able to get these type of performances out of them. Absolutely. But yeah, no, I, I, I love Hori Mia. <laughs> um, I, it's, I mean, I might, I might be jumping the gum, gun just a little, little bit here, but it, it might end up being my favorite show of this year which is crazy because it's only, it only came out in winter. We still have three anime seasons left with all kinds of new television coming out of them, including a show from the creator of um, A Silent Voice. So, but 
I love Horimiya, my genuinely. It makes me cry almost every single week for very different reasons. And I think that at this point, I've probably shed tears for almost every every major character in this show, which is incredible. And there's not many other shows I can think of that have done that. I think the only other one that really comes to mind is Fruits Basket. Yeah, pretty much. Which, speaking of Fruits Basket, <laughs> um, and yeah, again, like speaking of other shows that like Kaylin Glass is such a good ADR director, she's also the ADR director for Fruits Basket. And we had another amazing episode of Fruits Basket this week. Yuki! Yeah. Um, yeah, so I love Machi. She's amazing. And I love her. And I would probably die for her. And I imagine that Yuki probably feels the same way because she's just, uh, I feel so horrible for her. She's ha- Her life has been just so terrible. Okay. Who's more, whose backstory is more tragic and whose parents are worse, Reigns or uh, Maichi's? Macho. I don't know. Probably tied at this point because Maichi's parents, Machi, Machi, sorry, Machi's parents threw her out and, and set her up elsewhere when they thought that she was trying to kill her younger brother, even though she was putting a blanket over him. Oh, yeah, just to keep him warm because her parents are insane. Oh my God, help. Again, um, we got a little bit of information about um, Machi's parents from Kakaru talking about it with Yuki in season two, about how um, Kakaru and Machi's self-worth was completely defined on whether or not they they would be able to carry on their family name uh, and the notoriety and, and wealth and, and all that would come with it and how judgmental their parents were and Kakaru, who kind of hides all of his deep insecurities underneath like a happy face and trying in his inner and trying to keep up a constant energy around him, Machi does it the opposite way. Um, all of the stress and expectations that were placed on her by, especially her mother, broke her to the point where um, she strives for imperfection. She doesn't want anything to do with being perfect, and she wants to actively ruin anything that she sees as, as perfect, which is symbolized in this episode by her stepping on snow to destroy the perfect whiteness of the ground created by it. By it. Which is very relatable. I mean, not in like a depressing way, but just as a kid, whenever I saw uh, a whole sea of snow, I always, I always like felt guilty about walking on it because it ruined the perfection and that's just part of my OCD going crazy so I definitely related to that in a less depressing Mm -hmm. way and I thought that was a really good allegory for how messed up her life was and Yuki yeah um before you get on to the Yuki stuff I think it's interesting that snow was used as an allegory for um for negative aspects of characters both here and in Horimiya (laughs) oh that's that's like that's so yeah. good <laughs> that's so good that is um and yeah no, no surprise it's with the female characters that i relate to the most in both shows so very interesting yeah i wonder um, i wonder if the writer for horimiya got that from fruits basket mm-hmm. that'd be interesting 
I mean, yeah, I mean, and Caitlin Glass happens to be uh, ADR director. Oh, both of them for both shows. Yeah, that <laughs> I want. I, I'm, uh, man. I wonder if I ever um, have the chance to talk with Caitlin Glass. I might want to bring this up specifically because this is one heck of a coincidence. <laughs> it definitely is one heck of a coincidence. I will definitely agree with that. And yeah, my uh, Machi does have this imperfect. Uh, have this desire to be imperfect. And Yuki being the suave and just amazing man that he is, it's basically awesome. like, it's basically like, we'll, we'll walk on snow together. And that's awesome because, yeah. you know, if you, if you, if you're with someone that has, if you're, if you're with someone that does have those imperfections, you know, you want to, you know, appreciate and, you know, love that about them and, you know, try to help them you know, in, in the best of way possible. It's like, it's like when a couple cooks together, you could burn the kitchen or you could like, you know, burn your food, but at the same time, it's still a memory that you create together. Absolutely. And I think the way that Yuki treats Machi, again, is a good show of how much character growth he's gotten because of how open he is able to be with her. Um, Yuki is complete is at this point in the show, I think Yuki is fully comfortable with the person he is. He no longer has a desire to be something that he isn't. And he's fully accepted kind of the person that he is in the, and no, and is actively striving to be a better person every day. He's fully comfortable with every aspect of his personality. And that's awesome. Um, I think in that way, Yuki is probably the most confident character that we have in the show at this point except maybe for shigure but that's like a whole other kind of conversation for another day but that because shigure kind of has that fake arrogance while i think yuki's confidence is actually well placed where he he's confident within his own his own body and his own personality and that extends to the way that he's able to display his emotions on his sleeve now with machi and how quickly like in last week's episode, how quickly he realized what Machi's true feelings were for him and how he acted on that instead of instead of thinking that there was no way that anyone could ever display that kind of emotion to him, he just immediately was accepting of it. And and I think he's attempting at, to the best of his ability to reciprocate that. He is. And he's someone who, you know, is is fully considered of other people's feelings but at the same time he's not shy about his own feelings and he's very confident he's able to interact with others including you know um you know president of the yuki fan club who confesses her love for him yeah and he doesn't like shove it off like he probably would have in season one um before he met toru he well he can't reciprocate it he lets her know that he's grateful that she loves him in that way. And again, 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 it goes to show just how open Yuki is with himself, especially to other people that he's able to do that. Um, he, why like, it's again, like we, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't like using this word like legitimately in an ironic way, but we, we stand um, um, a masculine character that is comfortable within his femininity. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, obviously, both genders do have like you know the aspects of other. I, I'll, I'll admit it. I do have feminine qualities. I will one hundred and ten percent admit that. I definitely do have my feminine qualities. So I do. So I do appreciate. Another reason why Yuki is easily my favorite character because. Like I said, he's like, he, he's a lot like me. Like, you know, he's very, you know, I've become much more confident. And yeah, Yuki does have his feminine qualities just like I do. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And it's, it's I think awesome. it's, it's more important. And I think a lot of characters struggle with it. I mean, we, again, we've seen Yuki struggle with it throughout the entire new show. And he's far from the only character that has because Kyo struggles with it too. But being able to actually show your emotions and being open about that and being open about what you're actually feeling, letting yourself cry, letting yourself um, feel love, acknowledging that you can be loved and that you're deserving of love as all things that are present within that kind of feminine quality um, that every person should have. And being open about your femininity and letting yourself feel feminine is as, as important as it is letting yourself feel masculine. And that's Again, and that the flip side of that's something that the show has also tackled as well with characters like Uatani and Hanajima. Yeah, it it's it's very it's very interesting how like you know you know society has you know kind of conditioned men in a way to like not show your emotions, but when you see that happening, you know it's very satisfying. But there are also like females who you know don't show their emotions, like you mentioned Hanajima, or uh, or on the flip side of that they don't show their strength they don't feel strong they don't feel like they can hold their own there they don't have any any sort of masculine energy within them and it, i mean and it's with characters like uwatani i it's like i think a lot of uwatani's character was being able to like have both of both her masculine and feminine sides be balanced within her and i think with hanajima that's also the case as well yeah, definitely. And, and and the last part of this episode that I really liked was you see the treasurer of the student council have a crush on, you know, president of the Yuki fan club. And she told Yuki beforehand, you know, I believe in karma. You know, someone's going to tell me that they loved me all this time. And, you know, he literally does exactly that. And she and gives him the exact same response. And, and it's also important to note that, that he says almost the same thing to her that she said to Yuki, which I just, I love when that happens. I mean, we talked about when that happened with um, Amelia and Subaru in ReZero, um, with how he basically repeated a lot of the same lines or symbolism that Rem told him um, in what is easily the best episode of ReZero. And that's like, that's the same case here. And I love the, I love how poetic that is. And I love... I love when that happens. And I know the part of that is due to the original writer um, for Fruits Basket, but also a lot of that comes through with the localization, them, them being able to um, make those lines feel so similar and have that delivery feel so poetic. And that's awesome. Absolutely. I, 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 lo I, love, I love the poetry as George Lewis said, you know, it's like poetry, you know, it, it all rhymes. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, like that karma thing. I mean, yeah, that's that's exactly what happened. It all came full full circle for her, and it also explains why the treasurer has so much vitriol. Or I think he's the secretary, not necessarily the treasurer. I think he's the male secretary of the student council. 
Um, it also explains kind of his sort of vitriol for Yuki, that he was jealous that Yuki was so loved necessarily, while he never really got that until until this moment. Because while she can't really reciprocate his love, she can still appreciate it and show him that she does. Yeah, which is honestly even more great character growth. And it, man, every every character is making me feel emotions. It's like Hori Me on steroids. Yeah, this Fruits Basket's great. <laughs> I mean, this is the reason why it's one of our favorite anime ever, because it's awesome. Oh, yeah, easily. I mean, like, yeah, there's like, it's the character that makes me cry is always the one I least expect to, to make me cry. Like, I expect characters like Momiji and Machi to make me cry. I don't expect characters like the like the head of the Yuki fan club that actually get tears out of me. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah, no, that is, that is definitely true. But man, no, this was this was a great episode. Um, it was. I, like again, it's I I appreciate how much depth they're. Um, Fruits Basket is giving to every single character, no matter how important they are to the to the main plot of the story, which the main plot ultimately is Toru trying to break the course. But outside of that, there's so there's so much stuff going on that is given so much time and effort to grow and develop. Like, is a relationship between Yuki and Machi necessary to like the plot? of fruits basket not really but that kind of it's a really good way to show how much yuki has grown while giving him another kind of horse to tackle and also giving us a a female character that um is more sensitive and has more of of a shyness and and that kind of negative connotation that imperfection that's and all this stress placed upon her that we don't have with any other character in the show. Yeah, no, it, it's it's amazing how much development these characters do get. And I love all these side plots that maybe don't impact the overall story, but it makes each character better. And I think it's fantastic. And there's a reason why it's one of the best anime that exists. Yeah, like, yeah, we no. Um, I thoroughly love Fruits Basket. I while I don't think it'll ever beat like Full Metal or Mob Psycho 100 for me, I love this show so much. It's perfection. No, Mob. Okay, Full Metal. I don't think it'll ever top that for me either. But really, not even Mob Psycho. I love Mob Psycho 100 that much. <laughs> Understood. I think it, it's it's not like I think that Mob Psycho 100 is a better show than Fruits Basket. I just I feel more emotional about Mob Psycho 100 than I do about Fruits Basket interesting <laughs> that's just how it be <laughs> um and i think that part of that has to be with like the how much i relate to like a character like mob compared to like toru because like i love toru in fruits basket but I, there's not really any parts of her character that i can relate to because i'm just not that kind of person but i absolutely relate the characters like kyo and, and machi so much <laughs> that's fair that's fair but yeah, uh, do you have any final thoughts about this episode of Fruits Basket, Sean? Give me more. I love back-to-back weeds of episodes. Keep it going. <laughs> well, I mean, it's being simul dubbed, so I, I like I 
I don't think that we're going to see. I will be surprised if we see a delay in episodes anytime soon because, again, like the crew at Funimation, Caitlin Glass, the entirety of the voice cast, the people do it, they're doing the, the audio editing, the person that's um, translating and script writing for the show's dub is doing an amazing job keeping this up every week. Like, it's insane that despite the fact that we that we saw the pandemic going on and, and while i know that most the majority of if not all of the voice cast and the people working on fruits basket are fully vaccinated at this point it's still amazing that despite everything going on we can have fruits basket um be simuldubbed same day release as the sub on crunchyroll that's or um, and the broadcast in Japan. That's insane. Like, it's one thing for My Hero to have like a three week delay. It's another thing for shows like Fruits Basket that have same day release. Yeah, it, it's amazing and it's something we'll never take for granted again. Yeah, it's like, it's crazy to think that this used to be the norm, that it used to be the norm that um, we would only have like a three week delay the way in the show and it was very rare that we would have like a week without uh an episode being dubbed but now it feels like a privilege and this is kind of similar to what happened when um Funimation first started um their streaming service where they started dubbing literally every single show they had the rights to and we're slowly starting to get that again like again like the first hints of it were shows like Horimiya and Skate the Infinity getting dubbed so quickly after they first hit Funimation and now we're just straight up getting same day release with Fruits Basket and I think that there's also um, a new show that Funimation simul dubbing as well on top of that it's amazing how far we've come within the span of a year yeah it's we're slowly returning to normal and it's good to see that that is happening here in the anime community yeah because like I remember having the wait like I think it was like three, maybe four months for the fi- for the finale of It Invaded to get dubbed. That's that's crazy how much how um, quickly the the time is the the time is given. Like they're able to put out episodes for the dubs. Like I mean, we had a full like two and a half months without a single episode of Golden Winds dubbed because of COVID. That's it's crazy that um, we're at the point where we're back to it, it, at least almost feeling like normalcy. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, waiting that long is pretty nuts, and yeah, it's it's great to see a return to normalcy. But yeah, that'll I guess that'll do it for this week's episode of Nerd Explosion. I know that we have finals coming up. I imagine that you have stuff planned for the future after finals for the site, Sean. So. I talked about it uh, some last week as well, but I know um, I know a couple things that are in the near future is Falcon Winter Soldier review. Try to get that in the next week or two, uh, since its last episode is coming up soon. Uh, and I can't believe it's almost over already. Oh my gosh! And then, uh, and then also, at at some point, I'll actually write about you know the, the second Phoenix Wright game which, you know, I'm trying to do that for two months, but just haven't had the time to do so. So look forward to that as well. Right. And um, with Near Replicant releasing next week, oh my God, <laughs> I'm so excited for that. 
Um, I'll, of course, be putting out an article about Neurotomna, and I'll, of course, be putting out a review for Neuro Replicant once I finish it, because that probably won't take me. Considering how quickly I went through Neurotomna, probably with, since I won't have any school to deal with with Neuro Replicants to release, it'll probably take me even less time to get through that game. And I imagine that if it's anywhere near as close to emotionally devastating as Nier Automata was, I'm probably going to need a couple of weeks of just playing Stardew Valley to recover my energy from Nier Replicant. <laughs> yeah, considering what you said about Autonoma, yikes. Cause, yeah, because um, for anyone that hasn't played Nier Automata, it is probably... It might be hyperbole to say this, but it might be my favorite game I've ever played. And it emotionally devastated me. I was absolutely wrecked by the end of it. And part of that is due to how good the writing is. Um, and, and it also has to do with how good the... I played it with the English dub. And like we talked about how good Kira Buckland is as Beatrice in ReZero. She is amazing as 2B. She's so good as 2B. Um, but Kyle McCarley is even better as 9S and the whole writing for the game and all the philosophical ideas that it tackles and the grayness of the morality is so good. Um, I especially love how much the prologue throws you off of from how the rest of the game is going to feel because the prologue makes you think that the game is going to be kind of like a hack and slash kind of like um, most people think Final Fantasy is like. And then it ends up being this emotionally complex game. It, 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 it feels like as emotionally complex as like ReZero is. It's just fantastic. And I cannot recommend it enough. Like if you have not played Nier Automata, go and buy a copy right now and play through it. Because it is legitimately one of the best games of all time. And the multiple endings that it has is just such a great idea. It's very similar to like how Higurashi is with the way it deals with its multiple endings. So I'm hoping to check it out sometime this summer. I am quite terrified. It's so good. <laughs> it's just, it's so good. I don't think I've ever cried as much while playing a video game before. <laughs> And that again, like, and I've played like Final Fantasy VII, like the original Final Fantasy VII, and that game is heartbreaking too. Um, but like Nier Automata is just on a whole other level. There really isn't any other game like it in existence. Oh boy. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, my points of this, ep this episode, as always, is like if you aren't watching Invincible, you should be watching Invincible. And if you haven't played Nier Automata, you should absolutely play Nier Automata. And if you want to cry endlessly every week, you should watch Horimiya and Fruits Basket because you will have you will be in tears at the end of every episode. No matter what. I swear. Yeah. Yeah. But you can yeah. come back and yell at me for, for recommending Fruits Basket to you. <laughs> if if you end up crying after like the second episode. <laughs> yeah, um, pretty much. But yeah, um, thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day.